I'd like to welcome you to week three of our series from the book of Jonah. And uh, actually, before I say anything else, let me just read what we're going to talk about today. Um, We are still in chapter one for the third week now. If that should show anything, it's that uh, there's a whole lot in every passage of scripture. Um, So we're going to be in in, in chapter one, verses four through 16. Let me go ahead and read that and um, we'll get into it. It says, then the Lord hurled a violent wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lots singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who's to blame for this trouble we're in. What's your business? Where are you from? What's your country, and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you to calm this sea that's against us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so it may quiet down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this violent storm that's against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, please, Yahweh. Don't let us perish because of this man's life. And don't charge us with innocent blood, for you, Yahweh, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is God's word. Two weeks ago when we opened up this series, I... I made a promise on the front end. Uh, I was talking about how I think more so than most books in the Bible, Jonah has this reputation for being kind of like, you know, designed for Sunday school and that's about it. Um, Most people, you know, have a tendency to think that, you know, it just doesn't have a lot of relevancy for us. And so on the front front end of this series, I I, I made the promise that this book would be highly relevant um, to where we are today because Jonah specifically deals with issues and topics that we're all dealing with, we're all faced with, whether we want to be or not, we're all trying to think through. And, and, and really, since the beginning of this series, some things have happened in the world that I think have made that promise even more true than I thought it was when I gave it. If you're familiar with the story of Jonah at all, you know that Jonah is the story about a man called by God uh, to go to his greatest enemy and, and preach to them and warn them about God's anger. Jonah doesn't want to do it. For the last two weeks, we've really focused primarily on, on Jonah. And drawn parallels from his life and kind of seen how maybe we're a little bit more like him than we thought. I'm not going to do that today. Today we're going to look at, uh, instead of Jonah, we're going to look at the sailors who were in the boat with Jonah uh, as he was running from God's calling on his life. Uh, sailors who, as we, as we just read, were caught in the middle of a great storm that was causing them a great deal of fear. And that's exactly what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about this thing called fear. Before I get into this, I I felt when I was putting this teaching together that it was really important to kind of make a few statements about fear on the front end. Um, This is my thought. When most people, I'm just trying to think if I was in your position. 
if I heard a pastor say we're going to talk about fear today, I think most people's minds goes to, you know, the first thought is, well, that's, you know, that's great. I'm sure that, you know, some people really do deal with fear, but I'm not afraid. I'm just, and you can fill in the blank however you'd like. Uh, here's the, the thesis that sort of undergirds everything I'm going to say today. My conviction, and I would just offer to you and ask you to consider for the next half hour or so, that most people go through life driven by their fear, but they're totally unaware of that because uh, their fear has a tendency to manifest itself as something other than fear. Meaning, if that wasn't clear, what I mean to say is some people can admit, yes, I struggle with fear. I am fearful. I am afraid. Most people in my experience can't admit that. I'm actually one of the people that struggles with admitting that because admitting that a lot of times, you know, you admit that you're afraid of something that kind of makes you feel weak. And so what most people do is they go through life uh, driven by fear, but they cover that up with emotions that come more naturally to them. Um, and so what winds up is, is, uh, is their fear is just manifesting itself in all these different ways. I just wanted to give you three examples on the front end. And maybe something I'm about to say here really sounds like you. For some people... Uh, they allow their fear to manifest itself as anger. Uh, there's no shortage of that in our country or across the world right now, I'd venture to say. Certainly no shortage of that on social media. Um, and the reason for that is because when we get angry, it makes us at least feel like we have a measure of control. And so anger is a lot more attractive than just being afraid for a lot of people. And actually, my wife has correctly pointed out that that's kind of my MO. I want to give you an example of this. Several times throughout my life, my children started choking. And I will tell you, there is nothing more terrifying to me than that. And I don't know if that's just a me thing, but but the, the fear that I feel when my kids choke is, is what I would consider to be a very inappropriate level of fear. It's not that you shouldn't feel fear. It's just I lose my mind. And on, on several occasions when my kids have started choking, uh, and I'm not talking like blue on the floor. I'm talking about they're, they're just kind of coughing. I will start yelling loudly at my kids for choking. It's kind of like the, you know, if you die, I'm going to kill you kind of thing. Makes no sense whatsoever. And, uh, and, and, of course, the reason for that is not because I was angry at my kids for, for choking. It's because their choking terrified me. But it was easier for me to feel anger than it was for me to feel fear. And I say that to say maybe as you've looked around uh, the world for the last 10 months or you've looked at what has been happening in our country the last couple weeks uh, or just what's going on in your life, and, and, and you, you've just been generally angry. Maybe people have told you that or you've just kind of noticed it in yourself. I just want to offer you, maybe it's not really that you're angry. Maybe you're just covering up your fear because it's easier for you to get angry than to admit how much fear is at work in your life. Sorry to get all Dr. Phil on you, but it's worth considering. All right. For, for other people, their fear has a tendency to manifest itself as sadness. And I remember there was one experience that I had that made this real clear to me. Right on the front end of COVID, somebody... Um, I was talking to somebody right after they got back from the grocery store. This is right on the front end of COVID. And so this is right when masks started getting mandated. And, you know, that's a weird thing for people. That's, you know, kind of what, you know, it's just different. And so they, this person had just gone to the grocery store. They had to wear a mask, which, which they hated to begin with. And then they couldn't get the one thing that they went to the grocery store to get because of all the stockpiling. You probably remember that was going on in the front end of COVID. And so they, right after they left the grocery store, they, 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 call, they were talking to me and they said... Um, 
They said a specific phrase that as soon as they said it just erupted into tears. They said, I just don't know what this world's coming to. As soon as they said that, it was like a waterfall. Uh, and, and in that case, what was happening is they were experiencing a great deal of fear about what was happening to the world that they once knew and loved, but their fear in that case was manifesting itself as, as grief and sorrow and, and sadness. Maybe that's something that kind of hits home for you. Uh, but, but lastly, I think a lot of times fear just has a tendency to manifest itself as exhaustion. This is another one that I can relate to. Um, you know, maybe when you, you kind of like you look at, at what's going on in the world or what has been going on for the last 10 months, maybe you would say, well, I'm not afraid. I'm not fearful. I'm just, I'm just tired of this nonsense. You know, I'm just, I'm done with this. I'm over it. This is stupid. Can we just get back to life? I'm just exhausted. And, and again, I, what I would just put forth for your consideration is maybe the reason for your exhaustion is that for the last 10 months, you've been dealing with a kind of uncertainty that none of us are used to. And, and right now, at least where we stand, the future certainly doesn't offer a whole lot more certainty than the last 10 months have. And so maybe what's, what's really gone on underneath the surface in your own heart is you've just been dealing with a low-grade level of fear for so long that it has literally exhausted you. And so it, to, to kind of summarize this intro, let me just restate my thesis by saying it, it's my conviction uh, that, that it is entirely likely that right now, whoever you are, whatever you believe, wherever you're coming from, that there is more fear in your life and it has a greater hold on your life than you are presently aware of. And all I would like to do today is talk about what to do about that. I would love to help with that um, because we're staring at a passage that literally is aimed at that specific thing. This is a passage that is squarely about one thing and one thing only, and that's fear. If, if you noticed in, in verses uh, in verse 5, it says that a storm come and, and these sailors were afraid. In verses 10 and 11, it says the storm got worse and so their fear got worse. And in verse 16, it says that the storm gets calmed and then they're filled with even more fear. So this is a passage that it begins with fear, it ends with fear, it's all about fear in the middle. And, and um, we're going to get into this passage by looking at three themes today. I'm going to look at number one, the stormy sea. I'm going to look at the fearful sailors. And then I want to look at the, um, the willing substitute. And what those three themes are going to show us is, is first and foremost really where fear comes from and what's going on in our lives and in our hearts that brings that to the surface. Then we're going to look at the two wrong approaches to fear, to handling the storms of life that every one of us defaults to on autopilot and, and actually I think tends to vacillate between. And then we're going to look at the one thing that we need to deal with fear. That's what I want to do today. So with that, we're going to get right to our first idea. Number one, our first theme is the stormy sea. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 5, it says, that The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel, and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. Um, one of the things that we know about sailors in the Bible is that they were not known for their piety, not the most devout group of people. Uh, but what's, what's interesting here in verse 5 is that as soon as the storm comes up, everybody develops a prayer life real quick. And what, what this is getting across, and uh, I think this is really easily seen in, in, in life today, what this is getting across is that storms have a tendency to reveal who you really are regardless of what you tell other people and even regardless of what you tell yourself. And what storms reveal, what, what verse 5 is showing as storms reveal, is that deep in the human heart, we all know that there is a God, even if we can't correctly identify him, we all know that there's a God and that we need him. In, in Romans chapter 1, um, Paul makes this incredibly, I think, bold assertion uh, 
along these same lines where essentially what he's saying is that there is in fact no such thing as a true atheist. I want to read uh, Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 21. Here's what, here's what he said. He said, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Hang on to that word for a second. Verse 19, since what could be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he's made. As a result, people are without excuse. Verse 21, for though, this is an incredible statement, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him or show gratitude. When when Paul talks about people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, that word caught my attention, I decided to look it up. That word suppress is a Greek word that means to have possession of something, but while having possession of it to make the conscious deliberate effort to restrain it and not allow it to really do what it's supposed to do. And when Paul talks about people who do this, people who suppress the truth, though they have it, people who, according to verse 21, knew God, Paul's not talking about Jews who had the Hebrew scriptures, they had the divine revelation of God, they just refused to go go and trust Jesus. The group of people Paul's talking about there is your average run-of-the-mill Gentile citizen in the Roman Empire, the vast majority of whom had never read a Bible verse in their lives. And so what Paul's driving at here is that no matter what we tell other people, no matter what we tell even ourselves, uh, there's something about the human heart that simply knows that God is there. When we look around at the, the order of the universe... When we look around at the complexity of life, when we consider the philosophical problem, and it is a philosophical problem, that there is something rather than nothing, when we consider the fact that there is a morality prescribed on the human heart to the point that we know that certain things are wrong, even if nobody teaches us that those things are wrong, the, the human heart, when considering all these things, clearly demonstrated in the order, uh, in the order of the universe that a creator God has, has made and designed, there's just a part of the human heart that simply knows that there is a God who was there. And, of course, that awareness becomes far more acute and our dependency on him becomes far more acute during the storms of life. That's what Jonah 1.5 has shown us. Because it's the storms of life, loss, pain, tragedy, sadness, heartache, that remind us of how fragile we are, that remind us of how dependent and contingent we are, and how little control we actually have. My my uncle and my father were both pastors, and I don't know how many individuals they dealt with throughout their ministries who, throughout their life, didn't have a lot of room for God in their life. But the moment that they found themselves in a hospital bed, staring down the ever-present reality that their time on earth may be very short ahead of them, all of a sudden, they begin doing what these sailors are doing in Jonah chapter 1, verse 5. They start praying. They start seeking. They start opening up their idea to the presence of God, to the existence of God. And I'm, I'm sure that there's a whole lot of people in the world throughout the last 10 months who have been doing that same thing. And so... Um, my, my point here is that the, the storms of life, uh, what they do at bottom is they, 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 they remind us that we are all God-knowers, and they remind us that we are God-needers, because they, they reveal to us exactly how dependent and contingent and fragile beings we actually are. And so the question is, what are we going to do about that? Uh, and this is where we turn to our second theme today. Number two, we're going to look at the fearful sailors. What happens in this passage, uh, verses 4 through 16, is these sailors, because of the storm that they were faced with in their lives, 
we're basically pushed along, if you want to refer to it this way, uh, kind of a, a process of spiritual development. And what they do along the way is they show us the two, I'm not saying two wrong ways, I'm saying the two wrong ways to deal with the storms of life and handle you know, all the fear that that brings, um, which are two ways that every single one of us defaults to on autopilot and probably bounces between from time to time. And then after that, they show us the one thing that we need in order to actually face the storms of life in a way that we're not crippled by our own fear. So, so what I want to do uh, for a few minutes now is just look at, at, at the two wrong ways that they demonstrate for us. And again, my hope in here is that maybe in looking at these sailors, you'll see a few things about yourself that maybe you weren't as aware of. I certainly have as I studied this passage this week. So we already looked at this in verse 5. The very first thing that, that the sailors do here is they call out to their own gods, plural. And the reason for that is obviously because they were polytheists. Now I want to call what they're doing here, I just want to label this the irreligious response to storms. And to explain why I'm calling it that, uh, let's just talk about polytheism for a second here. Uh, polytheists obviously did not believe in one supreme overarching God. Uh, they believed in a whole lot of gods. And so you sacrifice basically to whichever God you wanted help from. So, uh, for instance, in the Roman Empire, if you were a soldier, you would make sacrifices to the God of war. If you um, wanted to fall in love and get married, you made sacrifices to the God of love and beauty. If you were a merchant, the God of commerce. If you had a long sea voyage ahead of you, you know, you're probably going to be knocking on Poseidon's door. Everybody had a God for something. But because there was, because they didn't believe in one supreme God, and because they didn't give their allegiance to one overarching God, what that meant is that when you made sacrifices to all these different gods, you weren't really worshiping those gods. It's not like you loved and adored and admired those gods. What you were really worshiping is what you wanted those gods to give you. When you made those sacrifices, you were doing so because really you were worshiping you know, strength and power or love and beauty and romance or you know, material possessions or, or financial gain or, 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 or um, you know, what have you. And you're basically saying, that's what I want most in life. That's what I'm convinced would give my life meaning. And so I'm willing to make whatever sacrifice necessary in order to get my hands on that thing. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, that's because that's how the vast majority of people are still going through life, even today in our supposedly modern, sophisticated culture. I don't know anybody who articulated this idea better than a man named David Foster Wallace. I've used this quote before. It's been a couple years since I've read it. So I wanted to, um, I'm going to read this to you. <clears throat> this is from David Foster Wallace. Here's how he put it. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Before I continue reading this quote, I just want to highlight what I have always considered to be the most powerful part of it. David Foster Wallace was not a follower of Jesus. He didn't even claim to be one. And actually, and tragically, a few years after he um, delivered this speech, he went on to take his own life. David Foster Wallace gave these words at the commencement speech to Kenyon College in 2005. All he was doing was being honest about what he saw when he looked out and and surveyed culture. So he, he continues, here's what he said. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You'll feel weak and afraid. 
You'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. C.S. Lewis talked about this thing called chronological snobbery. We all have this tendency to look back on the cultures and the generations and the civilizations that came before us as though we're so far advanced from their primitive minds. But the the plain fact of of the matter is that the modern secular culture that you and I find ourselves in today is at bottom no different than the polytheistic culture of thousands of years ago. We live in a culture where most people do not believe in a single supreme overarching God to whom they owe their allegiance. Uh, But everybody, because of the design of the human heart, everybody is looking for someone or something to give their life meaning. And so when somebody says, you know, I'm not religious, all that means is that you're looking to some material thing. You're looking to some finite thing, whether it's your career, it's romance, it's, it's you know, your family, your money, whatever. And, and you're banking on that thing to give your life value, to give you value, to make your life worth meaning. And in a very real sense, that thing is your God. I, I say all this to say the first thing that we see in this narrative that these sailors teach us is that the real problem with those kinds of gods you know, those polytheistic, irreligious gods, those things in this life that we look to besides God or more than God, what j- just Jonah chapter 1 verse 5 shows us is that none of those things are going to be of any help to us in a storm. And the reason for that is because those things are just as susceptible to the storms of life as you and I are. We know this, it's just something that I think we forget very quickly. Our careers, our 401ks, our families, our physical appearance, our health, Our strongest relationships right now are exactly as susceptible to the storms of life as you and I are. Meaning, obviously, if we look to those things to save us, if we rest the weight of our life banking on those things to give us meaning, or if I can quote Wallace here, if if, if those things are where we tap real meaning in life, then it's not going to be very long before you and I experience a profound destabilizing kind of fear which is exactly what the sailors in Jonah chapter 1 were experiencing in their storm. And it's what I'm sure a whole lot of people are or have been experiencing for the last several months. And and, and so just to kind of summarize here, the point is the irreligious response to storms simply doesn't work. And, And irreligious people who put their hope in something in this life other than God, uh, are eventually going to find themselves totally like these sailors, totally defenseless against the storms of life. Now, with all of that being said, it may, it may seem like what I'm getting ready to say is that the answer then uh, is to you know, stop being irreligious like these sailors. You know, stop you know, investing your life and, and, and looking for meaning in, in, in you know, sex and family and money and all these kinds of things inside the box. Uh, and the answer would be to just stop doing that and instead to just become religious. And surprisingly... What the sailors go on to show us is that that approach isn't going to be any more helpful to you either. See, what happens in this story, we we read it on the front end, is that the the sailors actually very quickly abandon their irreligious polytheism. And they quickly develop an awareness of Jonah's God. And they actually, they, they quickly develop an intellectual grasp of that God. They understand that Jonah's God, Yahweh, Uh, really did make the sea and the the heavens and the earth. And he is the author of this storm. And evidently, uh, this God of Jonah's is a whole lot stronger than any of these kinds of jokey gods that they've heard of and made sacrifices to their whole life. They understand that intellectually. 
they begin calling out to that God, and they even exhibit, in some ways, a desire to please that God. Uh, but the, 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 the issue with that is none of that helps them. Actually, their fear only grows in light of that. And the reason for that is because all they've really done is they, they're, they're, they've entered into a kind of a bargaining uh, contract with God, no different than the bargaining contract that they used to have with their idols. If you, if you look in verse 11, I think this is really telling. The question that they, 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 they ask is, what do we have to do? And really, that's the question that underlies all religion as a lifestyle. Religion simply asks of God, what do I have to do to get you to love me? What do I have to do to get you to save me? What do I have to do to get you to bless me? What do I have to do to get you to get me out of this mess I've gotten myself into and give me the life that I really want? So really, all these sailors have done is they've, they've moved from sort of an irreligious polytheism to now a, a highly religious, sort of fear-based, works-oriented, bargaining, quote-unquote, relationship with God. And what this narrative is getting across is that you're never going to be able to deal with fear just by getting religious in general. It's not enough to just say, okay, well, you know, I haven't been reading my Bible, I haven't been praying, I haven't been going to church enough, so let me go ahead and start doing those things more, and then God will owe me, then God will protect me, then I'll feel safe because I'm being a good person. What this is showing is that that's not going to help you deal with fear. But let me just point out something that is so central to the theme of Jonah that I think is really important to touch on here. I think most people would agree with what I just said. This idea of, you know, just getting religious is not going to help you in life because who are we to think we can put God in our debt and all that kind of stuff. The, the, the problem with that, when we hear that, of course, nobody disagrees with that. But the issue, and this is really central to the, the story of Jonah and the person of Jonah, is that it's entirely possible to be just a vaguely religious person without realizing it. It's entirely possible to think that you really have trusted in God that you really do have a life-changing relationship with God. Meanwhile, you really just have switched from irreligion to religion as a lifestyle. It's entirely possible to be in the dark about that. Jonah was before all of the things that God led him through. And actually, I think one of the telltale signs, one of the ways that you can know that all you've really done is move from an irreligious way of life to a religious way of life is that when the storms of life hit you, you tend to vacillate between two poles. On the one hand... Uh, when the storms of life hit, you'll hate yourself because you're convinced that you haven't held up your end of the deal and that's why your life is so hard. Or, or then on the other hand, you'll go from that to sometimes you'll actually hate God and you'll believe that he hasn't held up his end of the deal and that's why your life is so hard. Bottom line is both of those conclusions are wrong and that way of life is not going to be able to help you when the storms of life hit. And so just to summarize here, what the sailors show us is that on the one hand, an irreligious lifestyle, but on the other hand, a generally vaguely religious lifestyle, what they both have in common is neither one of them are really going to be of any benefit to us as we face the storms that inevitably come in life. So, so the question is, what do we need? What actually works? And the answer to that is going to be found in our final idea, our final theme today. It's number three, the willing substitute. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 12, it says this, He, being Jonah, answered them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, so it may quiet down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this violent storm that is against you. People have wildly different opinions about what Jonah's true motivations were uh, when he made this statement. Uh, and the truth is we can't know. Scripture doesn't speak to that. Um, but what is clear to me, based on what Jonah says here, is that he is at least beginning to get it. He's at least beginning to come to his senses, even if his motives aren't entirely pure, 
Because what that statement represents is really the first time in the book of Jonah that Jonah begins to think about somebody other than himself. And he takes ownership of his sin and he realizes that he and he alone is to blame and he realizes that it's not right that these sailors pay for his mistakes. And, he's, and so he says, I'm not going to let you all die for me. I'm choosing to die for you. So what I need you to do is pick me up and throw me into the drink. And the sailors don't even want to do it. They try to row back to sea, which I think is really interesting, the compassion that they had for Jonah. They try to row back to the sea. That doesn't work. And so very uh, sort of hesitantly, they wind up throwing Jonah in. And what happens after this is recorded for us in verses 15 and 16. It says, then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And then we come to a very interesting verse, verse 16. The men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. What's interesting to me about this passage, among other things, is that in verse 5, there's a storm, and so there's fear. In verses 10 and 11, that storm grows, and so their fear grows. In verse 16, uh, it says there's no more storm. And so you would expect no more fear. But what you read instead is exactly the opposite. It says even more fear. Only the difference this time is that these sailors were no longer had a fear of the storm. They had something that they never had before. That's the fear of the Lord. So what, what, what exactly happened here and what, what exactly does that mean? Uh, in Psalm chapter 130, I've actually had people ask me, what does the fear of the Lord actually mean? And, and I think in, in Psalm chapter 130 verse 4, you get a real clear picture of what the fear of the Lord actually is. In Psalm 130 verse 4, it says, but with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. And that Hebrew word is the same word that gets translated fear here in Jonah. So David is saying, you have forgiven me. You have extended forgiveness to me. And your forgiveness has made me fear you. Now what that means is that the fear of the Lord can't be this kind of anxious, uh, worrying that you know, one day God's going to find out something he doesn't like about me and kick me out of his family because I didn't live up to standards. What David is talking about here is this worshipful awe and wonder and amazement at who God is and what he has done for him. What David came to this realization of in Psalm 130 is that on the one hand, God uh, is so holy that David recognized, I need your forgiveness. But on the other hand, David also came to understand that God is also so loving that God was willing to extend that forgiveness. And it was those two ideas put together that developed in David this fear of the Lord. And what these sailors saw in Jonah chapter 1 What these sailors saw developed that same fear in them, which raises the question, what did they see that day? And it's crystal clear what they saw in this story. What they saw was the storm of God's wrath coming for them that was surely going to destroy them immediately and instantaneously disappearing because one man loved them enough to sacrifice himself for them. That's what happened here. Seeing that caused them to experience something they never had access to before. It's not the fear of their storm, but it's the fear of the Lord, which ironically is the one kind of fear that puts every other kind of fear in our lives and in our hearts to rest. Now, it's tempting when I was putting this together, if I heard 
if I heard me say what you just heard, the, the first thought that would come to my mind is, okay, well, that's great. And I'm sure that I would be transformed the way that these sailors were if I had the chance to see what they bore witness to that day on the Mediterranean Sea, but I'm not in the boat with them. And I don't get to see that. And that's true. You and I do not get to see what these sailors got to see. But we get to see something infinitely better. Because what these sailors saw that day was a prodigal prophet get thrown into the literal storm of God's wrath because he knew he was to blame. What you and I are able to see living on the other side of Calvary is the Son of God entering the ultimate storm of God's wrath because he knew that we were to blame. And it stands to reason in my mind that if what those sailors saw transformed them the way that it did, then what you and I are able to see should transform us in infinitely greater ways. When Jesus said, when he came here and said that he was greater than Jonah, his point was that there really is only one storm. There really is only one disaster that can ruin us, that can kill us, that can destroy us. That's our sin and the wrath of God that at least a part of us recognizes at bottom that we deserve. Jesus' point there is that he came to face that storm and he came to enter in those waves so that we could stand amazed at the wrath of God completely disappearing before us. Seeing that and that alone will develop the kind of fear that will free us from every other kind of fear. That's the fear of the Lord. I have one more quote that I wanted to read to you before I call the worship team up and admittedly, I was a little bit hesitant with this. Um... I don't want this quote to come across as insensitive or dismissive or anything like that, um, but I, I think that it's so relevant to everything that we're dealing with right now um, that it's worth reading. This is from C.S. Lewis. It was written in 1948, just after the dawn of the atomic age. So this is, this is right after that moment in history when atomic weaponry was being developed, which understandably caused a great deal of fear for a great number of people. People reached out to Lewis and they asked, how should we be thinking about this? Here's what he said. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. And I think you can insert anything in the place of atomic bomb there. I think you can insert COVID-19. I think you can insert political unrest. I think you can insert whatever commands your fear right there. In one way, we think a great deal too much of uh, of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. Or indeed, as you're already living in an age of cancer, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of a painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. And I love the way this quote ends. He said, if we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, 
bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint in a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. Let me call the worship team up. I'm, uh, I'm always careful to say things like this, but I can say confidently that it is not God's desire that any of us would live in fear. Scripture says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. God desires that we would live lives abounding in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what human flourishing looks like, and it's what God desires for every one of his children. And the way that you and I avoid really the prison that fear would put us into is by seeing exactly what these sailors saw that day in Jonah chapter 1. We need to see the storm of God's wrath that was headed for us completely vanishing because of the sacrifice of one who laid down his life willingly for us. And that is precisely what the gospel shows us. If ever we forget, we need only go back to Calvary and we need to go back over and over and over again all throughout our lives. Uh, we need to develop a relationship with God that goes beyond just hearing a message on a Sunday morning. We need, we need to pray the truth of the Psalms into our hearts until it becomes real to us. We need to choose, we need to make the choice to worship even when our feelings haven't caught up to us yet. We need to allow scripture to search us, to show us all the things that we continually look to instead of God to be and do when only God can be and do for us. And we need to surround ourselves with people who remind us of the truth of what God says about us when and not if we forget that. I hope that nothing I've said today makes that seem like an easy or quick process because it's not. It's a lifelong process. And and the bottom line is it is a fight to work the life-changing love of God into your heart. But as we do, the one kind of fear that frees us from every other kind of fear develops in us. That's the fear of a God who loved you enough to send his son to die for you so that he could bring you into his family. As that fear grows in you and it grows in me, that fear will calm every other kind of fear. That fear, even if it doesn't calm the storms of life, it'll calm the storms in our hearts because it reminds us that regardless of what God leads us through, whatever storms come this side of eternity, we're gonna make it through safe and sound to the other side by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father, I, um, I want to thank you that you're a God that drives out fear in the lives and in the hearts of your children. I want to thank you that we have reason for hope, we have reason for joy, we have reason for love and peace, uh, regardless of what we experience on this side of eternity, because we have a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb. And, and what those things represent is the promise that whatever happens... On, on this side of eternity, the other side of it, by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, it's going to be so beautiful. It's going to be so amazing. It's going to be so, it's just, it's going to be right. And we're going to be made right. We're going to be made whole. And we're going to know, we're going to know when we stand before you at the end of our lives that everything that you led us through, you loved us the whole time and it was worth it. And you were causing all of it to work together for our good like a loving father. God, would you make us the kind of community that believes that and lives out of that truth, that holds on to the hope that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. By grace, through faith, in the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.